Our passage today uh, is taken from the book of John, chapter 21, uh, verses 1 through 19. So follow along in your, uh, in your Bibles or smart devices or uh, however uh, you would like. This is God's word. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your life-giving word. Uh, We pray now that uh, you would unleash upon us all of its uh, truth and power and beauty. Uh, Would you convict us? Would you lift us up by it? Would you teach us new truths and remind us of old ones? Uh, Give us your Holy Spirit so that in mind and heart uh, we can be transformed by your word. Uh, And this we pray. Amen. 
Well, today is December 30th. Uh, we're two days away from January 1st, and we all know what that means, right? Uh, time to start our resolutions for the new year, if you're into that kind of thing. Uh, I'm going to hit the gym four times a week. I'm going to run more miles. I'm going to run faster. I'm going to eat more vegetables. I'm going to eat less chocolate. I'm going to eat more chocolate. The antioxidants, of course. You know, that's my personal uh, resolution. I'm going to be kinder to my husband or wife or kids or friends. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to read more books. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to read the entire Bible in a year. Maybe this time I'll make it through numbers. Now, most of the time, I'd say, we usually don't keep to our resolutions if we make them 100%, do we? Somewhere in that calendar year, maybe it's January 2nd, uh, we fall short of doing what we set out to do. We might even call it a failure. In our passage today, uh, we have a man, Peter, who had experienced failure of epic proportions. As the story goes, he denies his master, Jesus, three times during events that were unfolding where Jesus could have used comfort and support the most from his disciples, from his friends. Leading up to Jesus' death, uh, Peter vows passionately that he would stand by Jesus no matter what, assuring Jesus that he was prepared to suffer and die with him, promising Jesus that he couldn't possibly deny him, even though Jesus prophesied that he would. With our text this morning, we will uh, consider three things, uh, the first of which is that Jesus appears to his disciples. In verse 1, we read uh, that after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Galilee. Now, this was sometime after Thomas's profession of faith, Thomas the disciple, and the third recorded time that Jesus appeared after his resurrection. As you can see in verse 3, Peter goes fishing, uh, and other disciples say to Peter, we'll go fishing uh, with you. Uh, you This was their trade. And we shouldn't necessarily take this to mean that the disciples had completely abandoned the mission that Jesus had called them to do. Uh, After all, they were professional fishermen. It was their livelihood. Uh, They were looking to bide some time. Uh, But more than that, Uh, Jesus did command his disciples to go to Galilee and to wait. And we know this through his post-resurrection appearance uh, to the two Marys recorded in Matthew 28.10, where Jesus says to the women there, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, at first, we we see that the disciples did not recognize Jesus, uh, as was the case with other appearances that Jesus made following his resurrection. Uh, This also could partly be explained by the fact that that Jesus was standing on the shore, maybe far enough away from them uh, as they were out on the boats fishing. And in verse 5, Jesus asks his disciples, children, do you have any fish? Now this this word for children here is really more like uh, fellows or or lads or or boys, uh, the word that Jesus used. The disciples respond, no, for they had caught nothing. And then Jesus says, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Uh, Now, we can maybe imagine 
the disciples' mindset uh, is they were out there fishing, they were pros at this, uh, they were not having any luck, but, but here's, here's this man on the shore who they don't know telling them, you know, basically how to do their job. So maybe there were some eye rolls, uh, but they said, hey, we'll, maybe we'll humor this guy and, and do what he says. And of course, what follows is an overabundance of fish that Jesus provides them, uh, once, against, one, once again showing his authority over the created order. Well, as John tells us, uh, Jesus had lit a charcoal fire uh, on the beach with, with fish already uh, on the fire. Uh, and what a, a beautiful picture this is of Jesus preparing a meal for his disciples, continuing to serve them, to care for their physical needs. Jesus condescends to his disciples on that beach. And as Hebrews 13:8 tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, serving us today, providing for us, inviting us to commune with him, to share a meal with him. And that leads us to the second thing that we will uh, look at this morning, and that Jesus restores Peter. Luke 22, 61 and 62 gives us a, a good look into Peter's relationship with Jesus, uh, the status of it, as Peter denies Jesus three times, as Jesus said that he would, and then weeps bitterly, uh, catching Jesus' gaze. Uh, perhaps few humans in history felt a greater sense of, of shame than Peter did in that moment. And no doubt, on this day, on the Sea of Galilee, it was still constantly on his mind. We see in John 21, 7, that, that Peter runs to Jesus after the disciples recognize that it was him. Now, this is contrasted with another similar episode found in Luke 5, where Jesus commands the disciples to let down their nets after they had caught nothing. But there's one interesting difference here compared to the Luke 5 account. In Luke 5, Peter wants to depart from Jesus, depart from his presence after Jesus performs the miracle. The holiness of Jesus is too great for Peter uh, to withstand in that moment. Peter's recognition of his own sinfulness uh, is too weighty. But here, uh, Peter gets out of the boat and runs to his Lord and Master. Now put yourself in Peter's head for a minute. Jesus had already appeared twice to his disciples that we know of, that's recorded. And neither one of those times does he, does he bring up Peter's denial, does he deal with Peter's sin. In fact, Jesus decides to deal with Thomas's doubts in the second appearance. And we might argue that, that Peter's broken situation was much more serious and needed much more attention. But Jesus' timing is always perfect, and his waiting is not to be seen as, as unloving or just looking to torture Peter um, just for the sake of it, but rather that Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves and knows exactly what we need and when. And the details of this passage bear out, bear out that very thing. In verse 4, we read, just as day was breaking. Now, we have no indication whether or not a rooster had yet crowed on that day, but it would have been around the same time of day that Peter denied Jesus. In verse 9, we see that Jesus had prepared a charcoal fire 
on the beach. There are only two places in the New Testament where this word for charcoal appears, here in John 21, and then in John 18, when Peter denies Jesus. And then later in verses 15 and 17, Jesus questions Peter three times, mirroring the three instances where Peter denied that he knew Jesus. Now imagine being Peter, right? Interacting with Jesus as as day was breaking, his nostrils filling with smoke from fire as in that courtyard previously, and hearing Jesus ask the same number of questions as the number of times that he denied his master. Peter had a deep, deep wound, and Jesus was cauterizing it. It was painful for Peter, but he was receiving the necessary healing that Jesus was bringing into his life. Luke 22, 31 and 32 also just gives us a beautiful insight into the lordship of Jesus and just how deeply he cared for Peter, where he says there, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Well, just as Jesus does so masterfully, he asks questions of people, and the questions uh, that he poses to Peter, uh, we see in, in verse 15, where he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, these two words, then these, are a little bit curious. Uh, was Jesus asking Peter if, if he loved him more than, than the fish before them on the fire, more than the fishing boats, more than the, the fishing equipment, more than Peter's vocation? Or if Peter loved him more than Peter loved his fellow disciples. Or if Peter loved Jesus more than the other disciples loved Jesus. Well, maybe we can't say conclusively uh, what Jesus was intending, but it seems as if uh, the latter question was what Jesus was asking, based on Peter's bold proclamation that he would gladly lay down his life for his master. Peter had staked his reputation his security, his comfort on the fact that he loved Jesus more than anyone else and would prove it to the point of death. Yet when push came to shove, he couldn't even bring himself to tell a servant girl that he was associated with Jesus. And thus Peter's strong fortress, his perceived strong fortress of self-righteousness disintegrated before his very eyes. What Peter was trying to do was to to serve Jesus in his own strength. Jesus was teaching Peter that looking to serve him and follow him in human strength will lead to failure. Peter needed divine strength and divine mercy. We need divine strength and divine mercy. Uh, I like this quote here from a commentator with the last name Hughes. Uh, He says, serving Christ in our own strength trying to do it in our own way is like going after Moby Dick with a pickle fork. Now, I don't know what a pickle fork is. I don't think I've ever even used one or maybe know what one looks like, but uh, certainly would not be the weapon of choice to try to take down the great white whale. Well, in verses 16 and 17, Jesus continues his questions to Peter and asking him two more times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Verse 17, Peter's response, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. 
It was in that moment that Peter recognized that Jesus knew the very depth of his heart. There was nothing for Peter to hide. Uh, th- this was no, you know, drummed up uh, vow that, G- that Peter would, would love Jesus more than anyone else and, and would die for him willingly. Jesus knows the very depth of our hearts. And after each of Peter's three responses, Jesus gives Peter the command, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Now there's been discussion over whether uh, lambs refers to younger Christians, uh, sheep to more mature Christians, uh, but the main point I think Jesus was getting at was that he wanted Peter to commit himself to the flock above all else, to strive to love them, to teach them the truth that Jesus had taught him and the disciples. And we cannot miss that one simple word, my, that Jesus is the shepherd. The lambs and the sheep belong to him, and he was entrusting them to Peter's care. Likewise today, pastors and elders must take these words of Jesus to heart, to care for Jesus' flock above all else, to love them and to encourage them always. Convicting words. Further, it is remarkable when when we look at the nature of the restoration that Jesus was bringing into Peter's life on the seashore. You notice that Jesus doesn't make Peter do penance. He doesn't tell Peter to complete a long list of of things and then come back to me so that you can get back into my good graces. He doesn't doesn't tell Peter to to go off into solitude for a few months and and to think more about what you did and, and come back when you're truly sorry. Jesus does all the work. Jesus is the one who appears to them, who directs every part of the interaction, who atones for Peter, and all that is required of Peter is that he receive the mercy that Jesus gives. And that brings us to the third thing that we will reflect on this morning, and that that Jesus restores us. Friends, what are those failures in your life Uh, the ones that that go beyond mere resolution keeping. Uh, Not that it's wrong to to make resolutions, uh, certainly not. Um, But what are those failures that that cut deeper uh, than the resolutions that we seek to keep? Perhaps you are experiencing failure in your work even now, feelings of doubt that you can be successful, or dealing with a project or a task that has been an utter disaster. Perhaps you feel like a failure in your schoolwork, Perhaps it's the failures of your relationships, dealing with the fallout of a fractured relationship, or thinking that you messed up one too many times at being a good parent to your child or children. Perhaps you've let someone down or betrayed their trust and feel the despair of that. Perhaps you carry with you the burden of perceived failure, that while growing up, your parents would always put you down and never encourage you. Perhaps you've had an episode similar to Peter where you have denied Jesus in some way or acted ashamed to speak his name because of outright fear of what people would say or do, maybe the people that are closest to you in your life. Maybe it's that that one sin that keeps rearing its ugly head, that keeps eating away at you, and you always feel defeated. There's a tendency for us to think that God will will cast us aside over disappointment in our failures, that there are certain things 
that God just not, cannot forgive us for. But that is not the God of Scripture, and that way of thinking is contrary to the gospel of Jesus. The truth is that once we have confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord, once we are in the arms of Jesus, we are always in his arms. Once he calls us and saves us, no failure of ours, no matter how great, can separate us from God's redeeming, adopting love. Jesus has condescended to us, being born, living perfectly for us, suffering, dying on our behalf, dying for our sins, the sins that we deserve to die for, and living again. Now that word condescension, it's a, it's a funny word, isn't it? Anytime we use that word, it's usually in a, a negative sense, right? Don't condescend to me, you know, don't speak down to me. But when God condescends to us uh, in the person of Jesus, it is every bit a good thing. And what else can we take from this John 21 story? Well, earlier in the book, in John 15, 5, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. We are like those disciples on that beach who came up empty with their fishing. When we try to live in our own strength, we will come up empty. We will fail. And we are just like Peter, building up our own veneers of righteousness that we bring before God and think that they will merit his approval. In the end, though, they're really self-righteousness, a house of cards that will crumble to the ground. Friends, what are those areas of self-righteousness that God is revealing to you? The ironic thing is sometimes there are our greatest strengths, our, our greatest talents, uh, the things that we bank the most, our, our security on, our comfort in. Those are some of the things that God will, will use to, to, to break us down so that he can build us up. And we need a righteousness that is not our own. We need Christ's righteousness. Well, a passage uh, ends with, with two words, follow me, as you see in verse 19. Now, looking at our text, does Jesus speak these words to Peter after promising him earthly wealth, some brand new fishing boats, uh, some new equipment, and a lakefront mansion on the, on the Sea of Galilee? Not quite. Uh, Jesus commands Peter to follow him after telling Peter that he would die a violent death. Jesus is really selling it, isn't he? Perhaps you've heard or, or sung the song, I Have Decided uh, to Follow Jesus. Uh, it's an old song, and the song uh, sometimes is criticized for what seems to be an emphasis on, on human decision, that ultimately salvation rests in our power, uh, and it's up to us whether or not we want to accept or reject it. Now, certainly we must guard ourselves against this kind of thinking that disregards God's sovereignty and salvation. But there is a backstory to the song, maybe unknown to many, uh, that adds a different depth of meaning to the words of the song. Uh, as it goes, a Welsh missionary in India had finally seen his efforts blessed uh, after much persecution in a particularly brutal Indian village uh, where the first converts uh, to Christianity occurred. It was a husband, a wife, and their two children. When the chief of the village uh, heard about these converts, he was enraged he arrested the family, 
and demanded that the man renounce Christ or else his wife and two children would be killed. When the man refused to renounce Christ, they put his wife to death. Given another chance to renounce Christ, the man once again refused and his children were put to death. It was reported that right before his children were killed, the man uttered the words, I have decided to follow Jesus, and there is no turning back. It was also reported that seeing his wife pierced through with arrows, he said the words, Though no one is here to go with with me, still I will follow Jesus. Eventually the man himself was put to death, and what followed, according to the Welsh missionary, was a revival in that Indian town, where it is believed that the very village leaders who put the man and his family to death came to faith in Christ. The Welsh missionary passed along these amazing accounts of what happened in that village to a well-known Indian evangelist named Sadhu Singh, and Singh took the last words of this martyr and put them to traditional Indian music, and I have decided to follow Jesus became one of the first Indian hymns still sung in India today. Friends, we may never uh, face this kind of extreme uh, choice point when it comes to uh, following Christ and the cost of it. Uh, Many brothers and sisters around the world today uh, do face these kinds of extreme questions. But that does not minimize uh, our lives and it does not minimize other ways that we can follow Christ, committed to him, even at a cost to ourselves. Uh, I like the way that uh, commentators Matt Carter and Josh Redberg uh, put it. They say, as we follow Jesus, there may be days, weeks, months, even years when it feels as if we are failing. We may be following Jesus, doing what he says, and yet feel as if everything is going wrong. And to make it worse, we may not be able to see the purpose in it. It may not be until much later, if ever, that we discover the reason. In those times, the object of our trust will be revealed. Brothers and sisters, suffering is simply a part of the Christian life, a part of following Christ. And he wants us to be prepared to suffer for his sake. But the fact is, we will suffer in different ways as we live for faith, live in faith for Christ. But we shouldn't spend time worrying and questioning why this other person is suffering less than we are. Rather, we are to rest in God's ultimate wisdom that there are things we do not see, things that God is working out for good and for his glory. More than that, we shouldn't be taken in by false views on Christian suffering. Very quickly, uh, three different false views. One, that, that suffering is easier for more mature believers. Suffering is suffering. It's, it's always difficult. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. Sometimes it seems like there is no light at the end of the tunnel. Second false view is that suffering is based on our behavior. Uh, A great place to turn in Scripture uh, to help refute that is John 9 with the blind man there, uh, where the disciples asked Jesus, so who sinned, this blind man or his parents that caused his blindness? And Jesus said, not so fast. It was so that the the power of God and, and the mighty works of God would be demonstrated through his suffering. And third, that that God isn't in control of our suffering. 
If God isn't ultimately in control of suffering, that means there are some things that God is not in control over, which really means that God is not God at all, and we really have no hope. Well, the questions to us this morning, do we love Christ? Are we willing to follow him at whatever cost to go where he is leading us? Friends, our lives are marked with failures sometimes, uh, but thanks be to God that if your faith is in Christ, God does not look at you as a failure, but looks at you with boundless joy because he looks at his son. To be sure, we're works in progress. We're unpolished diamonds becoming polished, but God promises to bring to completion that work of sanctification in our lives to conform us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. That is something to be truly thankful for. That is our true hope. So follow Jesus, love him, and know that in him, God loves you more than you could possibly imagine. Let's pray.